John chapter number 2. I am aware of the time, and um, we're going to keep us on target, but uh, I want you to look, John 2, as you find verse 1, if you can, and you will. Would you stand with us, please? We'll honor the scriptures for by the reading of today's text. I'm interested in Christ as he turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, this being his first miracle. This will be our 20th look uh, in this Christ series. John 2, beginning in verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And they wanted wine. Uh, And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And uh, there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Christ turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. So we uh, plug back in this morning to our look into the life of Christ. And again, this is the first miracle in Christ's life, and here it is at the beginning of his ministry. You remember we've looked at um, and tried to section off as we've looked at the life of Christ, seven messages regarding the events and leading up to the birth of Christ, four scenes from the very young life of Christ. We call that scenes beyond the nativity. We took three messages, three Sundays, and looked at the uh, silent years of Christ's life and what that would have been like growing up. And then uh, three messages concerning Christ's life as he's moving from obscurity uh, into the public arena of ministry. Uh, this message, as our last, lands us back here uh, in the book of John. May I remind us of the key verses and the purpose for the writing of the book of John. John chapter number 20, verses 30 and 31 The Bible says, in many other signs, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The purpose of John's gospel, John wants you to believe on Jesus. He wants you to know uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his desire. Remember, we pointed out two or three particulars about John's writing, how that it's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You remember John never uses the word faith. His word is believe. A little over 100 times he uses the word believe in one form, one variation, or another. Our last message took us to John chapter number 1 and the calling of the first five of Christ. You remember that? 
John chapter 1, 35 to 51. Those five were Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. We gave you a brief introduction to them before dealing with the text itself. Of course, Andrew, he's the disciple that is seemingly insignificant, but he's not insignificant at all. He's always bringing somebody to Jesus. Brought his brother. He brought the little lad with the lunch. He brought a group of Greeks, which were considered barbarians in their culture. He brought them all. He knew what to do with them. Bring them to Jesus. And then there's John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He loved him so much and had so much confidence in him, he committed the care of his own mother to the care of John while hanging from the cross of Calvary. There's Peter. You remember we said about him that throughout the Gospels, he is see, uh, uh, he is uh, he, he's inconsistent. Uh, consistently, he's inconsistent. But if you watch him, read through your New Testament, what you'll find is, is that he's training. Jesus is training him in the Gospels. He stands on the great day of Pentecost like a lion and roars, testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he becomes a Sunday school teacher. He's teaching us. And across time, God developed him. The Lord developed him into someone who can teach us the truth of the Word of God. There's Philip. He's the reluctant disciple, but he does bring Nathaniel to the Lord, though he is reluctant. You remember in John chapter number 6, Jesus will feed the 5,000 men besides the women and children that day. Um, It was uh, Philip that uh, he just, by the time he counted how many were present, what was in the treasury, he just couldn't make it all work. Jesus showed him that uh, without God nothing, uh, for with God nothing shall be impossible then there's Nathaniel, the disciple who wasn't a phony. Jesus said, in him was found no guile. He could, he would speak his mind. Nathaniel is an open disciple. He's very honest. He's not closed-minded. He is open to the truth of the Word of God. But he's not gullible for anything and everything that comes through town. And so today it brings us to this text. In John 2, verses 1 through 11, Again, we've moved from his private life growing up, living in Nazareth, being a carpenter. Um, And now here he comes out in the public arena of ministry. He's coming out of the shadows, if you will. Patiently, the Son of God robed himself in flesh. He has grown as a boy, Luke 2.40. He has developed as a young man, Luke 2.52. And now in God's perfect timing, here he comes forth. And soon he's going to begin making his claims, the claims that only the Son of God himself can make. He's going to declare his purpose, that being to to die for the sins of the world and die for sinners. And then he is going to magnify his Father in doing his Father's will. By way of introduction, and the message will be brief, and the introduction will as well. But by way of introduction, I do want to mention a few items. I want to mention miracles. I want to say something about miracles. A lot can be said that I won't say today. But I do want to cover some basics about miracles and Bible miracles. I want to say something about the setting of this particular text and then the timing of this miracle. First of all, if I may, just a word or two. And you'll want to reference where I'm going to reference here in just a moment, I'm sure. But times of miracles, miracles and times of miracles in the Bible were given during times of transition. Isn't that right? Uh, There are three major periods that have already transpired. One period that is yet to come, and that is in the final days. 
before the Lord returns to this earth. But looking back across history, there were miracles, clusters of miracles during the days of Moses and Aaron. Uh, the, the Israelites were in Egyptian bondage. God's going to set them free. And God's going to use Moses. He'll send Moses and Aaron, and there'll be many miracles that will be wrought. Not just in Egypt, but when they're set free and, and they're crossing the wilderness and making their trek around in a circle for technically some 38 years. There'll be clusters of miracles that will take place. When, when Israel was in apostasy and Baalism was being promoted by Ahab and Jezebel, God sent Elijah on the scene. And during the days of Elijah and Elisha, there were clusters of miracles that took place. And then during the days of Christ and his apostles, if you'll follow along with me, you may want to mark these verses because I'll guarantee you, some of you on the job, you've had these conversations before with people that you know, you work with, and you love. In Hebrews chapter number 2, verses 3 and 4, miracles were given for authentication. Verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews chapter number 2, the Bible says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard them? Listen to this. God also bearing them witness, that is, bearing Christ's witness and bearing the apostles' witness, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles, in other words, various kinds of miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Then go back with me to the love chapter, the agape chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Miracles were given, especially during the days of Christ and the apostles for authentication. That's what I'm saying just now. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10 says, Charity, uh, that comes from agape, the God kind of love, the kind of love that has set his affection on you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't do anything to make God love you any more today, child of God, nor can you do anything to make God love you any less. It does not affect agape love, the God kind of love that comes through Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He said, That kind of love never faileth. Whatever the situation is, in obedience or disobedience, in times of strength or times of weakness, in times when we think we have proven to be a success uh, in this walk of faith, and at times where we've, uh, we've thought ourselves to be a complete failure, he says, charity never faileth. Listen to what he says, we'll fail though. He says, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Then watch verse 9. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. What does that mean? At the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, 90% of the New Testament had not been pinned down yet. And the prophecy, the gospel they were preaching was, they were preaching the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. They were preaching Christ. We often talk about a Roman's road of salvation. You can go to the Garden of Eden and find the plan of salvation. You can go over to Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb and find the plan of salvation. You can go to the great day of atonement in the book of Leviticus chapter 16 and find that that God was making a way through shed blood of an innocent sacrifice. You can go to Numbers 21 and the brazen serpent lifted high upon the pole and just for a look and belief a man could live and be spared from the curse of the serpent's bite on the desert's floor. And, uh, and so what I'm trying to say is that we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
They were preaching from the Old Testament scriptures. 90% of the New Testament had not been penned as of yet. Watch verse 10. He said, we know in part, we prophesy in part in verse 9. Then he says, but when that which is perfect is come, in other words, when that which is complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When that which is perfect is come. Your key word there is the word that. It's not in the masculine, nor is it in the feminine gender, but it is neuter. In other words, it's neutral. It means that when that, when something is completed, and I personally believe that to be the canon of the word of God. When, when John put his pen down, when he wrote amen at the end of Revelation, that which is perfect has been completed. It's nothing to add to it. You're not to take anything from it. Uh, we don't need sign gifts in the day in which we live. And for anyone who may be wondering, I am a cessationist. I believe in the first century, uh, the apostles, when they died off, so did the sign gifts. This foretelling of prophecy and tongues and uh, the other sign gifts the New Testament speaks of. Did you know that miracles were oftentimes were given in order to make way for a message? The day of Pentecost, for example, there were signs and wonders on that day. Then old Simon Peter of, uh, Simon Peter of all people steps forth and begins to preach to the people that day the message that God made uh, way for. And I want to say something about miracles and their definition. A miracle is something that is not natural. It's surely unusual, isn't it? It's beyond the norm of nature. It's beyond the experience and the norm of life. To speak of a miracle is to speak of something happening supernaturally. The supernatural is interjected into the natural order of events or things around us. Now, a miracle may happen at the hand of God. God may step on the scene, so to speak. In, intrude or interrupt things and work a miracle on behalf of a family or a church or a person or whatever it may be. But you know that the devil, the devil may work a miracle as well. John wrote in 1 John chapter number 4, he wrote this in his first three verses. He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, uh, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Not only can God work miracles, but the devil can work miracles too. And we're to try the spirits. How do we try the spirits? How do we test a man even? We do that again through this completed book that God has left us. This is not all God knows. This is just all God holds you and me responsible to know and be aware of. Do you know that a church is not to be a free-for-all? Did you know that we can't just believe any whim that somebody may come up with and, or any notion or somebody has a dream one night and, and it doesn't measure up to the Word of God? Well, throw the dream out and stay with the Bible. The Bible will do to ride the river with, Right? And we'll carry you all the way home in good order. Some words that clarify miracles. There are four words basically in the New Testament that are translated to give us the idea or even the word sometimes of miracle. The word power, when you, when you see the word power connected to a miracle, it comes from the word dunamis. That's where we get our word dynamite from in the English language. It emphasizes the might of God. The power of God, the strength of God, 
the ability of our Lord in performing miracles. Let's go sweat for him. I mean, he made it all anyhow. As a matter of fact, this miracle of turning water into wine that we'll notice briefly in just a few moments, that's a creation. That's an act of creation. Uh, that is a miracle. That's outside the norm. You can put water in water pots all day long. It'll never turn into wine. It'll turn into stagnant water. But now our Lord created that wine out of water in our text today. When you come up on the word wonder or wonders in the Bible, it comes from the word teros. And the word brings with it the idea of something that God does. It generates awe. It inspires us. It overwhelms us. It's an extraordinary work that God uh, will perform. The word wonder or wonders often is uh, connected to the word signs uh, as well. The word sign or signs comes from the word simeon. A sign is something that uh, points us um, beyond the deed to a deeper truth. Or it points us beyond even the deeper truth to our great Lord and his great ability. And then the, often the word works is used. That comes from the word ergon. It's often used for our Lord's miracles, but also his good, word, uh, good works uh, and his mercies extended. There are some 35 recorded miracles of our Lord uh, during, the, uh, during the time of his earthly ministry uh, while being here. And this is the first. Verse 11 of our text says, at this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. According to the key verses we read earlier, John 20, verses 30 and 31, there were many more miracles that Jesus did while here upon the earth. And according to John chapter 21 and verse 25, which is the last verse of the gospel according to John, the world wouldn't be able to contain all the books that could be written. Evidently, everywhere our Lord went, after this first miracle, he was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. Uh, he was um, displaying a, a miraculous power and ability over nature and life and, and, uh, and even the animal kingdom or whatever it would have been all along. Now, we think uh, uh, that the greatest miracle, and it is man work, known to man is that of the saving of the soul. And it, what a great miracle. That our Lord can change a man from the inside to the outside. Up one side and back down the other side. Can change his vision for life. Can change where he is. Change his heartbeat. And, uh, and cause a man who did not know the Lord to begin to have a passion toward the Lord. I remember when I was saved, there was a time you couldn't hit me up and run me in the church. But after I was saved, you couldn't run me out of the church. I'm telling you, every time I'd go, I'd weep and and, and be so humbled at what I was hearing uh, and what I was learning about what Christ had done uh, for me. But it very well may be, if you'll give me a little leeway as your pastor, that the greatest miracle of the Bible is Jesus Christ himself. At the virgin conception, the virgin birth, his incarnation, his sinless life. His death upon the cross, his burial of his body, his resurrection, and his ascension back into glory. You can't explain that. You can't explain the life of Christ. You can't explain his death, burial, and resurrection outside of all of it being miraculous and that he would, that he would show himself in our lives. Oh, dear heart. And let me say this about Christ's miracles he performed. Did you know every miracle he performed, somebody witnessed it? There was no sleight of hand. There's nobody doing magic. There's no set-up deal that's associated. Every miracle he performed, somebody, and often many somebodies, were a witness uh, to his 
uh, were a witness uh, to his, uh, his working and a witness to the miracle. Even here in this particular passage, the servants that would fill the water pots with water, they knew, the Bible says, they knew what had just taken place. They filled the water pots up to the brim so that nothing can be added. And as they dip out and take to the governor of the feast, that is the wedding director, as they take to the governor of the feast, when they, I mean, water went in, but wine's coming out. And they know that Jesus is the one that gave the command. He's the one that caused this to be, and they give witness to it. They had nothing to gain. I mean, they're just servants. They're just there to help, to help serve in the, in the wedding feast that was taking place there. It's about like the lost man Nebuchadnezzar. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to see how they fared, after all, all his men that threw him in the fire, they died because of the heat that was coming off the furnace. And he looks in there, and he said, fellas, something ain't right. And somebody probably asked him, what are you talking about, O king? He said, when I was in elementary school, one plus one plus one equals three, but I declare there's a fourth man walking in the fire. By the way, he got in the fire before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but a lost man testified to the Son of God that, that day in the book of Daniel. Let me say something about the timing of the miracle. Notice with me verse number one. The Bible says in the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. That simply is a continuum. In other words, after the calling of Nathaniel in chapter number one, three days after Nathaniel comes to the Lord, three days after this, they arrive here at the wedding of the Cana uh, of Cana of Galilee. Now the setting of this miracle takes place again at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now Cana and Nazareth, they were about eight to nine miles apart. At Nazareth, it's believed by some that the population of Nazareth would have been about 500 people. Many believe much less. Jesus and Mary are at the wedding. They are from Nazareth. Cana's population was only 30 to 50 people. It was more of a fishing type of a village is what it was. So you can understand how people from Nazareth and people from Canaan would have known each other, eight or nine miles apart. It's like being from Pontotoc and being from Ecru. Somebody say amen right there. I mean, you don't know everybody in Ecru, and everybody in Ecru don't know everybody in Pontotoc, but generationally there have been families. The Smiths have known the Williams, and the Williams have known the Browns, and you understand what I'm saying. Uh, my dad knew your dad, and my mamaw knew your mamaw, that sort of a thing. So it's not unusual these people from Nazareth and Canaan, uh, Cana wind up at uh, the same location. Now, the implication of the text uh, simply is that much wine had evidently already been consumed. Much wine had been consumed. And with this considered, Jesus and his disciples probably show up toward the end of the week, the end of the wedding feast, which usually would last about uh, seven days all total. The fact that Jesus shows up at a wedding and performs his first miracle at a wedding gives dignity to the sanctity uh, of marriage, where a man gives himself to his wife. A wife gives herself to her husband. Uh, he belongs to her. She belongs to him. They twain have now become one. And whether it be a private ceremony or a public ceremony, now publicly everybody knows she belongs to him. He belongs to her. They twain have become one. It was God that performed the first wedding, united the first man, Adam, and the first uh, lady, Eve, in holy matrimony in the book of Genesis. And uh, that's just the teaching of Scripture. We'll speak to you under three headings. First two is going to go real fast, and the last one we're going to take half the day with it. 
and I really won't. I, all of these will be brief. First, very brief. I want to say something about the crisis of the wedding. Verses 1, 2, and 3, it's very simple, the crisis of the wedding. The conversation between Jesus and Mary, it is interesting. Verses 3 and 4, and then the Christ of the wedding. Thank God he was at the wedding. Thank God he was on the scene. And thank God somebody could make a difference, showed up, and was a part of what's going on here. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Just make a statement, we'll move on. The crisis of the wedding, verses 1, 2, and 3. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. To run out of wine at a wedding back in these days was more than an embarrassment. As a matter of fact, the groom was to provide all the furnishings for the wedding guests for the entire week. And he's had a year to prepare. It's not like this has slipped up on him. An entire village or town would shut down for a wedding There was just nothing else to attend. There was nothing else to do. And here a young man and a young lady have grown up, and now they are uniting in marriage. They have been betrothed. They've been engaged for a solid year. She's been gathering items to make a home with. He's been preparing a dwelling place and putting back to furnish the wedding with the wine and the other items. It it was such a burden that legally the groom and his family could have been brought into legal lawsuit for not furnishing wine, and the other items for the wedding. So you see the crisis. It was more than just an embarrassing situation. Notice the conversation between Jesus and Mary, verses 3 and 4 at this wedding. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. In other words, they've run out of wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Two items here. When he says to her and addresses her as woman, this is not a matter of disrespect. Now, say something about that. Number two, this is a time where Christ is going to put distance between he and his mother. When he addresses her, not as mother, but as woman, again, this is no matter of disrespect. Here in the South, I said about one of our young men here in the church recently. I said, he's a respectful young man. I said, it's yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and ma'am. Yes, sir, no, sir, and sir. I said, that's just in his raising. That's who he is. And you see, to say woman was about like saying ma'am here in the South. It's just a good matter of respect. So she's, she's not being disrespected when he calls her woman. As Jesus calls Mary woman instead of mother, he's letting her know that uh, instead of being about her business, his mother's business, as he has been all these years, now things are about to change. He's going to be about his father's business. As a matter of fact, there are four such encounters in Scripture, in the Gospels, that is, between Jesus and Mary. We've already looked at one many messages back when Christ was age 12. His his mother and Joseph had left him behind. They found him in the temple. You remember what he said? He said, wish you not. He said, I can't believe you didn't know where to find me. I can't believe you've been looking for four days. You knew that I must be about my father's business. She got a hint of it right there. In Mark 3, verse 31 to 35, a crowd is gathered around. His mother and his brothers were outside the crowd and sent word for him to come out. They wanted to see him. And he's speaking of greater relationships established that God establishes. He said, said, look about us. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. And he went on to say, and my sisters. 
And then you'll remember on the cross of Calvary, he said, Woman, behold thy son. After he had said to John uh, to, to behold thy mother, he committed his mother under her care. And when he addresses here, uh, addresses her here as woman, this should not have caught her off guard. I mean, after all, Gabriel's already told her 30 years ago who he is. And Gabriel had told Joseph 30 years ago who he was and that he would be the virgin born, son of God, and he was to take Mary unto himself as wife. And as the shepherds would come and adore him, as he was lying there in the manger, the Bible teaches us that she kept all these things. She pondered them. That is, she pieced it together in her mind as uh, Jesus would have these different experiences. But now the relationship is changing now. He even goes on to say, my hour is not yet come. He's right on the verge of his hour being here. And his hour would come as he would reveal that he is the Son of God. As he steps forward here publicly and the pressure and press that would be upon him would be so demanding as now, purposefully, deliberately, he begins to make his trek toward the cross of Calvary. The crisis of the wedding, they're out of wine. That was unheard of. The conversation between Jesus and Mary, he's distinctly, he's definitely making a difference. Uh, but in their relationship, he's marking that off now. Instead of being about her business, his focus is going to be to do the Father's will. Now the Christ of the wedding, 5 through 11 with this I'm done. Look at verse number 2. Jesus was invited to this wedding. The Bible says in verse number 2, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. In other words, he was invited to come and be a part of the wedding feast and the wedding party. I say good on any bride and groom who invites Jesus to the wedding. Good on any husband and wife who invites Jesus into the home to be a part of the home. I shared with the story a lot of years back, some years back, about uh, G. Campbell Morgan. He was so proud of his first home. His father uh, lived a great distance and had visited where he was pastoring and visited their home. He had written a tale of his home. And his dad, he took him through the rooms of his home. And after he finished taking him through the rooms, they sat down. He asked him what he thought of the home. He said, not much. Saddened, he asked his father. He said, but why? He said, I cannot tell you are a Christian in any of the rooms from anything you have on the walls, any of the hangings. There's no Bible to be found. I cannot tell if I were a stranger that you are a Christian. You ought to be able to see a Bible when you walk into a man's home. Um, maybe a Bible, Bible verse hanging on the wall, the Beatitudes or something. Well, Brother Fred Vault, who went to be with the Lord some years ago, he lost his mind in his latter days to dementia. But he had enough about him. He'd take the plan of salvation on something, about an 11 by 14 card. He would have them printed up at Office Max. And then he'd have the Ten Commandments printed up. And he'd go around to people in the grocery store parking lot and he'd give them and ask them if they knew the Lord Jesus. Wanting to share the gospel that somebody had shared with him so long ago. The invitation of Christ to the wedding. Notice with me, if you will, the communication of Mary to the servants of the wedding in verse number 5. Watch what she says. After he's told her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour's not yet come in verse 4. Then she's going to turn and say something to the servants. Verse 5 says, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, uh, do it. 
A lot of people believe she was expecting a miracle, but I don't believe that. He's not yet performed any miracles. She's not imposing on him to perform uh, any miracles at this point. Here's what I'm convinced of. Like many, I'm convinced Joseph has now died by now. And at Joseph's death, the responsibility of the home would have fallen to the eldest son, and that's Jesus. And every time there was a problem in the household between Mary and his younger siblings, Christ's younger siblings, guess who was called upon? Every time there was a piece of money that was needed in the home, guess who earned it? Every time there was a problem needed a solution, she had learned through the years, whatever the problem is, he's got an answer for it. And she's saying, you can trust him. You're out of wine, go talk to him about it. He'll do right by it, and he'll come up with an answer when there seems to be no way. He makes a way. Now, look, if you will, verses 6 through 11, the act of creation at the wedding. I'm almost done. Notice there's six water pots that's available. Verse number 6, this represents that old outward religious Judaism that was so prevalent back in these days. People were taught, they believed, they thought, they bought into that if you clean the outside up, that somehow that means the inside's clean too. Of course, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Mountain, he blew all that out of the water, didn't he? About five times, he said, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. He said, but I'm going to tell you the truth. These six water pots are available, verse number six. And they were set there, six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. They used these two and three times a day, containing two or three firkins apiece. That's 20 to 30 gallons per water pot, and there are six of them. Notice he'll command them to fill the water pots with water. Verse number seven says... Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now read verses 8 through 10 with me, and notice this miracle of turning water into wine. The Bible said, and he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. In other words, when the palate has tasted the wine that would be served over and again, when these men are well drunk, doesn't mean they're staggering drunk. That's not what that means. As a matter of fact, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but wine back in these days and how it was used is not as wine and how it is used in our day. Now, water was often contaminated and diseased. And in order to drink water, many times they would mix one part wine with three parts water. Or one part wine with two parts water in order to help to sterilize and make the water drinkable. It actually had become a staple in most homes in Palestine because of the condition of the water back in these days. It says, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. According to verses 8 through 10, I'm convinced this is perfect wine. Now, we've all tried to get, get around this uh, fermentation process in the Bible, but now, there was no refrigeration. Fermentation was, it's just going to happen with the heat and the storing of the fruit of the vine. If it's held in that bottle very long, Don't let Chris Wilburn near it. 
Because just in the natural processes of that fruit of the vine, it's going to ferment and Chris is going to get in trouble. You understand what I'm saying? But now Jesus is making perfect wine. Perfect wine. Now, consider this with me. This wine is not going to go through a heating process. So there will be no fermentation of this wine. He will make in a matter of seconds a wine that is of perfect maturation in a matter of a few seconds. Now consider something with me. In order to produce wine, you've got to break up the ground. In order to produce wine, you've got to have seeds. In order to produce wine, the seedling, seedlings have to be planted and covered. In order to produce wine, sunshine actually is necessary for the grape on the vine. In order to produce wine, you've got to fertilize the grape vine. In order to, be, to produce wine, you'll have to prune the vines over a period of months. In order to produce wine, it's necessary that the rain fall upon it, that the wind blow and strengthen the vine, and that dew of the morning that touches, um, touches the grape vine. In order to produce wine, there's, uh, there'll be months of development. In order to produce wine, the grapes must be plucked from the vine and harvested. In order to produce wine, uh, once harvested, the, the grapes have to be taken to a wine vat or wine press. And in order to produce wine, those grapes must be crushed after harvest, either by a press or by people walking uh, in the wine vat and then in order to produce wine, it's got to be stored in a container. Most often in world history, it's been contained and stored in new bottles. But here Jesus is passing out wine that never was tilled. He's passing out wine that never was planted. He's passing out wine the sun has never set its face upon. He's passing out wine that's never been fertilized. He's passing out wine that's never been pruned. He's passing out wine that rain has never fallen on. He's passing out wine that the dew, the morning dew, has never kissed. He's passing out wine that the wind has never blowed upon. He's passing out wine that never saw months of development. He's passing out wine that's never been plucked. It's never been harvested. He's passing out wine that's never been taken to the wine press nor the wine vat. He's passing out wine that's never been crushed or walked upon. He's passing out wine that's never seen the inside of a bottle, and it's perfect wine. Anything he does is perfect. He's the Christ of the wedding. He's in charge. He was the guest, now he's the host. Invited to this situation. I've seen him take charge. I've seen him change and transform. I've seen him work miracles. I've seen him take lifelong addicts and give them a hymn book and let them sing Amazing Grace and cry about it. I've seen him take, uh, take men that used to be prisoners, locked up in a jail or a prison system, put them behind a pulpit. As a matter of fact, the preacher we had last Sunday, you don't know that's in his past, but years and years ago, God did a work in his life. And uh, I've seen him take women of the world and clean them up, give her a husband and some babies and... And uh, she's just thrilled about the opportunity, faithful as she can be. Wine, wine. Jesus turns water into wine. He can transform whatever your situation is, you know. Two or three more thoughts, I'm done. 
Wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. You can't get around it. Judges 9 and verse number 13, the vine itself begins to speak. Listen to this, Judges 9, 13. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man. Isaiah the orator, Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. To the Jewish mind, even to this day, wine is symbolic of joy. Even Jewish rabbis to this day says there is no joy without wine. It's interesting, when God sent Moses before Pharaoh... Other than throwing the stick down, it becoming a serpent, taking it by its tail, and it becoming a, um, a stick again, a rod again. You remember when those plague miracles, when those began to happen, the first of those was Moses turned the water of Nile into blood, which was a symbol of death and destruction. But here Jesus turns water into wine, which is a symbol of joy and gladness and rejoicing and only Only the Lord can do that. When these Jenkins ladies sing the song they sang this morning, and we amen, and what little I had to say, every one of you were smiling and rejoicing. Only God can put that kind of wine in a man and woman's heart. Lloyd Douglas said this when writing on this chapter. He said, surely he is an unfortunate reader of this epic who gets himself so distracted by all those stone water pots that he misses the real And only point of the issue, which is the simple fact that Jesus bears a transforming power. He turns water into wine. He turns frowns into smiles. He turns whimpers of fear into anthems of hope. He turns deserts into gardens. He he turns sin-blistered souls into valorous saints by the catalyzing alchemy of a selfless love. Wine, by the way, it's in abundance too. The wine he, he creates here, it's in abundance. There was somewhere between 150 and 180 gallons of wine that he made. If everybody from Nazareth, if the population was 500, and everybody from Canaan was present this day, that's not but 550 people. He's got 2,400 servings here to pass out. You know what I have found in our Lord? You can have this world and all the gusto it's got to offer. It's left me bruised and disappointed for years. The devil promises his best and he'll give you his best right up front. But he'll start withdrawing. And then there'll be a lie of death and destruction somewhere waiting down the road. But not our Lord. I find even in my life where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. And not only does he give joy, but he gives joy unspeakable and full of glory. He doesn't just give peace, but he gives peace that passeth all understanding. There ain't a devil in hell understands the peace we have today, child of God. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Not that I matter, but what he has to strengthen me with, that's where the supply is.
Verse 11 says, and the disciples believed on him. They had a long way to go in their journey of faith. But they're well on the way. They know the Lord. They haven't got all their T's crossed and all their I's dotted. They're well on their way. And that's how the Lord operates, isn't it? He gave the wine to the wedding guests. But he also gave the miracle to Andrew and John and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. God ever do like old brother Estes Perkle used to say. Does he ever just lean out over heaven and just say that one's just for you? There's a time in 2008 I did not know how I was going to get my family in a house. And every time I turned around when we needed plumbing, a plumber showed up with the supplies and we needed, we, need, we wasn't even going to hang doors in the house. And Larry Hooker showed up and he said, look, he said, I've already been inside. We were going to paint that day. He said, I've done called Teresa. He said, we're buying all your trim and your doors to hang. He said, we'll hang them for you. You don't even got to worry about it. We had a kitchen table and chairs give to us. We sat around those for years and still have them. And I'm looking at the couple that gave them to us. Every time I turn around, God is just confirming in my life, you belong to me, son. I'm not throwing you to the wolves. You need something to eat, I'll give you something to eat. You need grace to get through the trial, I'm giving it to you. What a God we serve. Let's stand. You've been most patient. Let's stand. As Miss Angie comes to the piano.